Good morning. Well, let's begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again, it's such a privilege to come and share and uh, be with people of like mind that love you and are longing to see you more clearly. We ask that your spirit will join us, fill our minds with truth and love that we can draw closer to you. Pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly, The Least of These, Ministering to Those in Need. And the title this week is To Love Mercy. And the first paragraph uh, reads, As we have seen, the Bible is filled with passionate descriptions of God's concern for the poor and oppressed, as well as calls for his people to work in their behalf. Despite the attention given to these issues, the biblical mandate has uh, seen just sporadic and partial fulfillment and will be made complete only when the return Uh, the return of Christ, and the supernatural events that follow. There's no doubt God is concerned for the poor and oppressed, no doubt about it, and that we also should be concerned for the poor and oppressed. I think that is a fundamental principle of Christianity. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. I don't think that's something you've never heard before, is it? No. Um, So the question I have, um, do we separate people, though, in the way we view the world as into poor and oppressed and rich and oppressor? There's the poor and the oppressed, and then there's the rich and the oppressor. Is that how we see things? But does God not have concern for the abuser, the exploiter, the powerful person who takes advantage of the weak? For instance, there's somebody historically called King David who took advantage of Bathsheba and Uriah. Quite um, viciously, really. Quite horribly abusive power. Wasn't it a horrible abuse of power? Did God not have concern for David? Or was he only concerned for Uriah and Bathsheba? When we talk about the poor and oppressed, in fact, let me ask you this question. From God's perspective, in the situation with David, Bathsheba, Uriah, who had the greatest need? Who needed the most grace? Who was in the most jeopardy of losing salvation? Who is in the worst position from God's perspective of things? And oddly enough, Uriah the Hittite is listed as, and he's a Hittite, he's not an Israelite. He is listed as one of the three, which are the top commanders and, and fighters for David. He, he was extremely loyal to David and an excellent fighter and he, a better man than David was, really. So when we see evil and sin being perpetrated in the world today, do we not only have, and we need to have concern for the victims, absolutely, not, not in any way diminishing that, but do we also recognize the great need the perpetrators have of God and God's saving grace? Do we recognize that need? Do we see, that the perpetrator, do we see perpetrators as people that we should hate, as enemies that we should seek to punish, to harm, to war against? Or do we see them as sick people, sick in heart, they need God's remedy of love, truth, and grace. How do we see the, the perpetrators? Well, Jesus said, and I will read to you out of Matthew five forty-three to 48, out of the NIV. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Would that be an abuser? Pray for those who persecute you. Well, and then notice what he says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Now get this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What did you hear? What did you hear in Jesus' words? Do you hear a law being described here? A design law, a protocol upon which God built reality. What law did you hear actually cited? Jesus referenced one of these laws from nature. The, the, the rain will... The sun will... What kind of law is that? Is that a law that, that differentiates between groups? Or is it a law that gives? The sunshine just gives. It gives to everyone. The rain just gives. It gives to everyone. This is the law of love. He's citing functionally how love operates, even to the wicked. God is pouring, is God in heaven pouring love and truth, pouring his Holy Spirit out on all people, even the wicked? What you would consider. In fact, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit pouring his love and truth in your heart, my heart, would we be righteous or would we be wicked? It's only the Holy Spirit and the work of God in our lives that makes us something other than wicked, isn't it? That, that transforms us into righteousness. So God is pouring his spirit and says for us to love our enemies so that we might be sons of our Father in heaven. Wow. Be perfect. What's this perfection? Have you ever, have you ever been wondered at perfection? Go ahead. Well, perfection is being loving in a way. Uh, and to me, it's not hard to love my enemies because love is a principle. It's not an impulse. I may not have the impulse to love them, but it's a principle. I will not go steal from them or kill from them or take my revenge. Uh, I can still pray for them. So that's why, to me, it's not a problem loving and doing what God would do, send his reign on the good and the evil. This is well said, because this is what Bible perfection is. When you understand design law versus impose law, impose law perfection is all about the, the performance, all the deeds, all the checklists, all the do's and don'ts. But design law, it's about your character. It's about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And the people who are perfect are perfect in their willingness to love others as the Father loves others. They don't act selfishly. They're not vengeful. They don't seek to inflict harm. What the world calls justice What's justice in the world's view? Punishing lawbreakers. What's justice in God's view? Delivering oppressed and healing lawbreakers. Making, turning lawbreakers into friends. Read 2 Corinthians, you'll, you'll see that. And more than this, nothing your enemies talks about pouring fire and coals on which could sound like punishment on the heads of your enemies. But what it means is to put so much love on them that it creates a, a, a fire in their soul to think, why would they treat me this way after I've been so mean to them? It's really the only thing that can stop evil is love. So how can we experience this being perfect, this loving character, this, this becoming Christ-like? How can we experience it? Yes. I'm at a struggle because, you know, being abused um, multiple times, I've, I've had a problem. And 
you know, it's a process that God's taken me through of forgiveness continually. Some days I'm good and forgive, and then other days, it, you know, you have to do that process again. But in that process, I read in Psalms that these things that, you know, he talks about the people who are doing wrong. These things you have done and I've kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them, your sins, in order as they really are before your eyes. And I've been praying that, that, but yet I've had to search my own heart on the revenge part. And then he brought me through that and realized that it's through the goodness of God that draws a person to repentance. And it's brought me to the point where I don't want them lost. I don't want the people that have abused me. I don't want them lost. I want them to bring their sins before them, but for the purpose of let them be broken like I was broken. Well said. And, well said. you know, save them. And well said. Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And that's exactly right. And, and so how do we experience this growth? She's given some insights here. Think design laws. Think design laws. You can't be healthy while violating the laws of health. Everybody understands that, right? You can't be spiritually healthy while violating the laws upon which our hearts and minds are built to operate. And there are design protocols for that. So you mentioned forgiveness. Uh, in the blog this week, for those who go to our website, I actually did a blog. Uh, people have been emailing, would you have a list of the design laws? Do you have a list of the design laws? So I did a blog listing uh, many of the design laws. And I, I, and I say in there, it's not a complete list because God is infinite, and I'm sure I don't know them all yet. But the ones that I currently understand and know, I listed a bunch of them. One of them, the law of forgiveness versus resentment. It's a law. What are laws now? Laws are the, the, uh, are the protocols upon which reality function, and they're testable, reproducible, and you get the same consequence every time. There's no variance. And if you have been wronged, and you hold to bitterness, resentment, anger, you cannot be healthy. You will get worse. You will have uh, inflammatory cascades in your body. You will become uh, 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 unhappy. You will actually have damaged relationships because you won't trust people. You'll see threats when threats aren't around. You will get worse. It's a law. Conversely, if you forgive in your heart, people, you will actually heal. You will have the bitterness and resentment and anger, and even the wounds that were put upon you emotionally will actually be resolved, and you will heal. It's actually freedom. That's right. It's a law. You can't avoid the benefits. Linda. Well, my is how I learned to overcome the uh, get over the bitterness, is to see them differently. God showed me a different way to look at them. And that allowed me to get over the... And that's the law of truth you're describing. Yes. Okay, the law of truth, displacing distortions and lies, you see more accurately, and that helps you heal. Well, the truth was, in my mind, here's a person who undoubtedly was injured in their life because they're now, as they're growing up, they're passing that, that wound on to everybody that gets anywhere near them. And you, you begin to feel a sorrow for them, a sympathy for their predicament. Because whatever they really want, what people normally want to be loved and accepted and cherished and so on, 
can never really happen for them because they're going through life. And why can't it happen for them? Design laws. You cannot have love in relationships while you're breaking the laws upon which love operates. So if you're coercive, if you're manipulative, if you're lying, if you're cheating, love and trust are going to be broken in those relationships. You can't grow in love and trust while you're breaking the laws upon which relationships work. So how do we grow in this? I've listed some of these here. Law of worship. That's in psychiatry and psychology called modeling. In the Bible, it just says, by beholding, we become changed. What you spend time worshiping, meditating, reading, assimilating, watching, watching esteeming, admiring, uh, as you do that, you change both neurobiologically and characterologically. So one of the, if you want to grow in godliness, you've got to spend time with God. If you don't spend time with God, but you're very religious... Think about all the religious people in the world that go out and kill others in the name of their God. Religion doesn't change the heart. It's God that changes the heart. So law of worship. Law of truth. Truth will set you free. Displaces lies. Restores trust. It also helps transform and shape the character. The law of love. The more you give, and we're going to unpack this one a little more in the lesson, the more you receive. Law of exertion. If you want something to be stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it so if you want to grow in love you've got to love people because if you don't actually love people those brain circuits and capacities don't grow but if you love people they grow so if we spend time with god and then time practicing and putting into practice the way we live our lives what we understand are his methods we grow in godliness does this mean i'm describing salvation by works absolutely not salvation is achieved totally in Jesus Christ for the human race, but we have to choose to partake, to identify with, to trust, to act in harmony with what he has provided for us. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, as was made clear in the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament writers, those who choose to live as members of the kingdom of God live by a different set of values and priorities than does the world. And how would you describe the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world? What would you say if somebody said, well, what's the difference between God's kingdom and the world's kingdoms? Different set of laws. Different set of laws, he said. Anything else? I like where you're going with that. We need to unpack that. Other centered versus self centered. Jesus, knowing that he had all power in heaven and earth, knelt down and washed his disciples' feet the very day they were all going to betray him and abandon him. That's a God of supreme power using that power to serve. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. So laws, design laws, truth, love, freedom, the big ones, truth, love, versus in uh, the, the system of Satan's kingdom, which is selfishness, versus, is opposite of love, deceit, opposite of truth, coercion, opposite of freedom. You'll see, and the principles of love drive out fear. Satan's kingdom is driven by fear. You'll see that as well. And so in God's kingdom, when you understand this principle of beneficence and giving, the first will be last, and the last will be first, and the least will be the greatest. How is it that you become greater the more you give? How is it that God is supreme? Why is God the supreme one? Why? Under imperial, under imperial view of looking imposable, it's because he's most powerful. That's why he's supreme, because he's got the greatest power. 
No, thank you. I want you to understand how reality works. It's because he gives the most away. Constantly, the entire universe is moment by moment, second by second, constantly sustained by disbursements of God's energies and, and, and his own self, if you will. He sustains the, the, all the stars in the universe. He sustains your life. He sustains everything that's going on, constantly giving of himself for the sustenance and maintenance of his universe. He gives more away than any. This is why he's the greatest. It's really cool. It gives me chills to think about. So, um, as you think about the two kingdoms, design law, kings of love, truth, uh, imposed law, rules, over, which of these statements, which kingdom do these types of common, you might have heard these statements, fall into? The end justifies the means. Which kingdom? It's Satan's kingdom. The ends justify the means. Might is right. The strong survive. Do unto others before they do unto you. You thought I was going somewhere else with that, didn't you? Fake it till you make it. Have you heard any of these before? What kingdom does that fall into? The law requires punishment, therefore sin must be punished. Which kingdom? Do you understand you'll hear that in almost every Christian church? You'll hear it in almost every Christian church. Justice requires God inflict punishment upon unrepentant sinners. Which kingdom? You'll hear that in almost every Christian church. It's part of Satan's kingdom. It's imperial. The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. Which kingdom? (laughs) It's Satan's kingdom, guys. The Sabbath is not an arbitrary test. That idea comes out of imperialism or imposed law. It doesn't mean the Sabbath isn't exactly what the Bible teaches it to be, but it's not an arbitrary test of obedience. If you want to get people who are living for God's kingdom... If you're the enemy and you want to get people who are living for God's kingdom to leave God's kingdom and start living for Satan's kingdom, now that we've identified these differences, uh, how might you get people to leave God's kingdom and start living for Satan's kingdom? Well, the obvious ones I'm going to throw out because they're easy ones for everybody to recognize. Addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling. Uh, you know, David's, David's struggle with a sexual temptation. Okay? Uh, these, are, these are easy ones to identify, right? Everybody sees those. <clears throat> Financial pressures uh, leading to people to embezzle, for instance, to steal, to, to cover their debts. Uh, these are the ways, uh, those temptations are obvious ones. But what about other ones? If you, if you toss the obvious ones, then what are the other ways Satan can get people to leave God's kingdom? Yes? Work so much that you don't have any time for God. We're, that's a really good point, and we're going to come to that one just in a minute. Just in a minute. Because... Because that one is, is where how he neutralizes people working for God's kingdom, but not necessarily leaving God's kingdom. I'm specifically asking, how does he get people to actually start practicing the methods of the enemy rather than taking them off of God's team, which is what you described. It's very good, and it's in the notes. We're going to get to it. How about disillusionment? 
pain, suffering, loss, discouragement. You had some belief. If I pay my tithe regularly, I've been told, if I pay my tithe, I would, but then I went bankrupt. And I paid a faithful tithe and I went bankrupt. God didn't bless me. God let me down. God, yeah, God's in control, and, and, and I trusted him, and, 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 I, and I prayed, but my child got cancer anyway. And I trusted him. So, so some bad outcome, like the story of Job, for instance, and we get disillusioned because we have a false expectation of what we expect from God. I mean, we've claimed the Bible promises. We have gone to the heavenly vending machine with our quarters of the Bible promises, and we've put them in the slot machine, and we've said to the, uh, the, in our prayer, I claim the promise of such and such, and God now is required, because I've put the right promise in, to give me out what I've, I've prayed for. And it didn't happen. Many people approach God this way. Have you heard the Bible promise quotes this way? Yes. Another application of that is understanding, though, even though it's design law, there's a process for that. Just because you accept that as the law doesn't mean a change is going to be immediate in your life. David rocked along for a year before Nathan approached him and, and confronted him on what he did. So even though I accept the, design, the, rec, the correct law premise, I have to accept that it's going to take a while for me to adapt, to change, to embrace that, and not become disillusioned or lose hope because that didn't happen overnight. Oh, I like where you're going with this one. So I see this a lot. People come to conviction. They understand they need to make a change. Uh, they want to make the change. They surrender to Christ. And then they go home and an old habit, an old behavior, something they've done for years, crops, and, they, and they fall back into that old habit. Okay? And then they become, um, it's over. Uh, it's useless. Why try? God, he, I'm, I'm powerless. I'm lost. I'm beyond God's help. I'm an unpardonable sinner. Obviously, it's... it's and, and what they forget is that Romans 7... You see, when you come to Christ, you get a new heart with a new motive. But when you get the heart and a new motive, so you long to be free of those old encumbrances, those old bad habits. You, you hate them now. You have a heart that loves righteousness. But you have deeply embedded neural pathways, what we call habit patterns, that have not been pruned back and degraded, and you haven't established the new habit patterns as the automated way you do things. So in certain situations, you will find yourself reflexively acting, uh, old habits coming up, reflex responses coming up, where you end up doing something, but then you in your heart grieve it. And this is why you get discouraged, because you go, I hate being this way. I thought I was going to be victorious. I gave you my heart, but I'm still... That's because they don't understand how the change comes. This is really, really good that you brought this up. And so I have to teach people. Imagine, uh, most of you have a habit... And how you brush your teeth. You start on one side of your mouth and you go through the same way every time. It's just that you don't think about it anymore. You just do it. Am I right or wrong? Come on. Okay. Now, you have the ability to choose to go the other way. Use the other hand. Go the other direction. You could change that if you wanted. And if you said in this room today, right now, you know what? I'm going to change the way I brush my teeth. I'm going to go the opposite direction from now on. By tonight, when you go to brush your teeth before bedtime, what are you likely to do? You'll do it the old way. And then you get in bed, and you're in bed, and you're about to lose, and, the, and it hits you. Oh, I was supposed to do it the other way. Do you go, I'm a loser. I can't, I can't change. I'm broken. It's beyond me. That's what many people do when it comes to growing in God. They give their heart to the Lord, and they don't understand that there's a struggle now to break the old embedded patterns. Their heart is now in the right place that they want to be the new man, but now they've got to practice being the new man before they actually get free of the old habits. This is really good. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. One saying that I, I saw in a, in a, a folder for the, at the Kennedy Center one time that said, living well is the best revenge. So 
when we're talking about making changes, we have to define where those changes are, where they take place, within what set of principles or... Sure. So we're talking about how does Satan get godly people who are working on God's team to leave God's team and start working on his team. One is to just get them into the, into the obvious sins, uh, the addictions and so forth and so on. Another is disillusionment. Okay. Another is discouragement after they've given their heart to the Lord and they haven't actually practiced the principles of the Lord, so they haven't actually changed the neural habits yet, even though their heart wants to, and they become discouraged at stumbling in the process of growing, and they give up. That's another one. But there's another one. How about success? Success, which leads to the feeling that we don't need the Lord anymore. I like that one. It's not my notes either, but that's true. Success, yes. Guilt. Uh, so we're not going to go into guilt, because guilt has both appropriate, appropriate guilt is when we're still doing wrong, and so that guilt would be redemptive for us. Uh, inappropriate guilt is when we're not doing wrong and we're believing lies, and if we're believing lies, then um, the only way to free us from that is with truth. And so it, so basically then, if, if we're being led away from by guilt, we either are still acting in sin or we're believing lies. So that's how the devil is getting us, to get, get us to continue to sin or to get us to believe lies. And then the truth will set us free, and that restores us back to love and trust. So, But the one I want to get to is, what about promoting godly goals by practicing Satan's methods? This is the trickiest, guys. We're on a mission for the Lord. We know it's a mission. We can find the Bible. We all agree it's a mission for the Lord. But we're going to do it by practicing Satan's methods. Coercion. Get control of government. Pass laws to make others comply with our beliefs. The Bible predicts in Revelation this is what's going to happen at the end of time, doesn't it? And the people doing this, are they going to actually think they're working for the enemy or they think they're working for the Lord? The majority of people in history who have abused others in the name of God, in the name of their God, and you can long list in history and even modern history, abusing others in the name of God, do you think that they thought they were doing wrong? Get your mind around that. The, I, I suspect the vast majority thought they were doing God's will at the time. Jesus actually said, they'll come to me, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff in your name. Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. Um, why would they think, now the question then is, after you get your mind around, they actually think they're doing right. Why would they think it's right to punish people who break some religious rule or dogma? who don't live by their moral standard. Why would they think it's right to do that? <laughs> Bingo! Because they see God operating in an imperial, imposed law construct, and they believe that the righteous thing to do for disobedience is to inflict punishment because they think God is the inflictor of punishment. It comes right back to the law of worship. We become like the God we admire, and we accept the lie about God's law, then we become like that God, and we abuse people in the name of that God. Last paragraph, those, in, 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 in just, so, so the line, where's the line drawn in societies between establishing laws to protect innocent and not violating the freedoms of others? Well, last paragraph. It says, those who have power, whether in government or otherwise, often enforce and maintain that power by threats or force. As we have seen in the life of Jesus, faithful living does not always and in every situation require passivity in the face of evil. For example, dealing with slavery in America, Ellen G. White wrote the following, quote, 
When the laws of men conflict with the word and law of God, we are to obey the latter. Whatever the consequences may be, the law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey, and we must abide the consequences of violating this law. The slave is not the property of any man. He is the right, uh, God is the rightful master, and God, and man has no right to take God's workmanship into his hands and claim him as his own. Very strong stuff right there. Very righteous stuff. Did you notice, did Ellen White in this, in this quote, or any other quote you can find, if you find it, show it with me, but I haven't found it, did Ellen White advocate killing slave owners in order to free slaves? Get your mind around that, folks. She advocated not obeying laws that discriminate and violate God's law. Do you see how Satan could take the principle of love, let's free the slaves, and get us to practice methods of killing other people in order to achieve our goal? Should we? Some will argue that we should. It's all about boundaries, methods, principles. Can you have the right motive, but the wrong method? The right motive, wrong method, and thus you actually cause more problems. For instance, doctors who treated George Washington's pneumonia had the right motive. They wanted to save his life. But the method they used was leeching and bleeding out the evil humors. They bled out half of his body's blood supply. Thus, contributing to his death. They were trying to save, but because their methods were wrong, they actually harmed. We cannot promote health in violation of God's laws for health. So Paul writes, I got some points I got to get to. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 3, get, get your mind around this, guys. This, this is going to be uncomfortable for some people as we unpack this. By the, grace of, by the grace God has given me, I lay a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones, uh, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What do you understand this to mean? Do you hear design law being described here? There is a design law, if you can see it, being described. A reality on how things work. Do you hear the difference between right motives of the builders, building with good intentions, with hearts that want to build and construct, but if they build with wrong materials, even with good intentions, it doesn't last because it's not in harmony with how God built things. Do you hear that? This is a warning to pastors, teachers, parents in how we teach and influence others. How we help to assist people in building their characters. We may have good motives, we may seek to help, but if we use wrong methods, then we may very well suffer great loss as we see those that we work so hard to bring to Christ lost because they never internalized the truth, never grew in harmony with God's design. For instance, 
Raising children in strict indoctrination to memorize certain rules, doctrines, and live by a code of behavioral conduct, all motivated by uh, the parent doing this because they love God and they love their children. And so they're very, very uh, you know, intense in enforcing this, longing for their salvation, but which results in a child becoming a person who lives in fear, doesn't know how to think for themselves, cannot discern truth from lies, lives a zealous religious life, but never experiences a renewed heart. Could that happen? Or a parent who love, whose love, um, become, they become, in love become an enabler to their child's addiction, always bailing them out, always rescuing them from consequences because they can't stand to see their child suffering in pain, so they step in constantly to deliver them from the pain they're in, but the child never learns from their choices, and they continue down a destructive path. The, the motive of the parent is they love them and they want to rescue them. You can see this very powerfully if you ever watch the movie A Miracle Worker. That's the movie about Helen Keller. And in the movie, Helen Keller's mother clearly loves Helen. She's deaf, dumb, and blind for who don't know the story. Clearly loves Helen. And she has great compassion and sympathy for Helen. But she will never set a boundary with that child. That child is a wild, almost animal by the time um, Annie Sullivan comes along. And when Annie Sullivan comes along to teach her, she has to take her away from her mother. And Annie starts to just try to teach her how to use a, a utensil to eat rather than her hands, to put a spoon in her hands. And, and, and in this battle, uh, uh, Helen slaps Annie. And what does Annie do? She slaps her right back. <laughs> now, you know what would happen today if that were to happen today? That healthcare worker would be prosecuted for abuse. Did she abuse Helen? Absolutely not. And in fact, Helen came to love her so much because she taught her and she opened the whole world to her where she could communicate and, and, and understand and learn. This was an example of the mother's love practicing bad methods that was actually harmful. So I'm going to read to you the same, paragraph, uh, same um, passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, from The Remedy. By using the wisdom, insight, and understanding that God has given me regarding his plan for rebuilding the human heart and mind, I laid a foundation in harmony with his original design, and others are now building on it. For Jesus Christ is the only true foundation, the real source of God's character, methods, and principles, and no one can replace him. One can build on this foundation using pure, holy, and costly materials, or using ordinary, common, and cheap materials. But ultimately the work will reveal itself for what it is because the day on which Christ because the day on which Christ returns will bring everything into the light of truth. On that day the quality of a person's character building will be revealed by the fiery glory of God's presence. For only those whose characters are in harmony with God's character will be able to stand in the fiery presence of his life-giving glory. And if those whom the builders have worked to build up in Christ survive, the builder will be rewarded with happiness and joy. If, however, the builder's work is burned up, the builder will suffer great sorrow and loss. The builder will be saved, but only as one whose, whose misunderstandings, errors, misconceptions, and mistakes are consumed in the fire of God's love and truth. What are your thoughts? This is a very powerful truth that people need to take to heart because I see it in my practice all the time. People are sometimes unwilling to do what Annie Sullivan did. That child is blind. That child is deaf. That child is mute. I couldn't slap that child. 
That's cruel. Because they don't understand reality. It was not cruel. It was an act of love. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And discipline is often painful. Painful, not harmful. Monday's lesson. Uh, Wendell, do you have a comment? The sentence, the law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. We must abide the consequences of violating this law. We have the consequences of violating this law, the law of freedom or the law of the land. You're going to have the consequences of a law, whichever direction you go. Yes, that's right. And, and she was saying that you obey the Lord's law, you will be uh, under the, the consequence of the state. But if you don't obey the Lord's law, then you're under the consequence of damaging your own conscience and character. Yeah. So Monday's lesson. Uh, the title is Compassion Fatigue. And I, I think this is, is what uh, Sophia was getting to a moment ago. Uh, the other strategy of Satan, if he can't get godly people to choose to practice Satan's methods, then, and he can't disillusion them, and he uh, can't get them to use the methods of the world, then he will overwhelm them with good missions and responsibilities and endeavors and projects that they burn out on, exhaust themselves, and quit. Yep. This occurs because Satan tricks them into violating one of God's laws. I didn't mention this one yet. Which law is violated in what I just described? Restoration. Yes, the law of restoration. When, when you expend a resource, you must rest and recover in order to have more to expend. And so we must... After we use energy, we must eat, we must drink, we must rest, we must sleep, we must get a weekly Sabbath rest for the mind. Jesus took time away from needy people regularly as a human being in order to go and rest because the law of restoration requires that he rejuvenate and recharge himself in order to have more to expend uh, to help others. So another trick of Satan is to get people to take upon themselves. And here's another one. Not only this, all this good stuff, but here's another one take upon themselves burdens that are not theirs. Either real or imaginary. So I see many people take on imaginary burdens. They're actually not, it's, 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 it's worry about some future burden that has not actually happened yet, but they're already uh, under the psychological stress of it. Or they'll take on other people's problems and try to fix other people's situations and the other people's burdens. Focusing on the stress of uh, a family, uh, a, a child's marriage problems, and, and, and worrying about your adult child and their marriage difficulties and trying to fix the marriage. You can't fix that marriage. Only those two people can fix that marriage. You can create opportunity. Here's what, here's what you can do. You can create opportunities. Opportunities for growth, opportunity for advancement. But people have to take advantage of any opportunity given. They have to apply themselves. They have to engage the principles for maturity and change. Strength comes from exertion. And if we take on other people's burdens, solve other people's problems, then not only do we do over-exercise and burden ourselves, we cheat the other person from the opportunity to grow. If we love them, we don't remove the burden. We can encourage them. We can educate. We can cheer. We can potentially assist if it is really too much for them. But at the end of the day, they have to learn how to solve their problems, manage their difficulties, overcome their struggles, don't they? Yes, I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yes. I'm very guilty of that. And yesterday I had Tom read to me in your remedy 
um, 1 Corinthians 13, because that's, that's my go-to, and 4 to 6, has that word intrusive in there. And that makes a whole world of difference when you look at it. Thank you. So another trick, here's another trick of the devil, is for people, is when people fail to differentiate, differentiate, make the distinction between pain and harm or injury. There's a distinction between pain and harm or injury. And, and people fail to make this distinction, they will often seek to relieve a loved one who's in pain. They're in pain. They're hurting. And that draws sympathy and it draws empathy. And, and it makes you uncomfortable to see your loved one in pain. But you have to ask, why are they in pain? What's the cause of the pain? What's the reason for the pain? Do I need to relieve it or do I need to let them? And this is another law. The law of brokenness. Once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. Of any kind. You think of any type of brokenness. Physical, emotional, relationship. Once it's brokenness there, if you do nothing, you leave it alone, you, you, you remain in pain and disability. You're disabled. You can't function as well. If you go to treatment, you get the bones set. You go to therapy, uh, etc. There's pain in that process. Many people miss this. And so... I have so many people come to see me and their core root problem is their, their, their whole approach to life has become pain avoidance. Their, their entire decision-making process, their entire reflex of life, everything they're doing is pain avoidance, pain avoidance, pain avoidance. What hurts the least right now? Rather than stopping and saying, hey, wait a minute. What's actually healthy? What's going to get me well? And if you've got any type of injury in your life, any type of brokenness in your life, you know that when you face it, deal with it in a constructive way, you have to go through a painful process. And if you seek to relieve somebody's pain in that circumstance, just imagine you have a child who's about to touch a hot stove, and you don't want to see them hurt. You know they're going to cry. You know they're going to scream. And so quickly you spray numbing medicine on their hand. So when they touch that stove, they won't feel any pain. Have you helped them? No. No. You've completely made it worse. They won't pull their hand off till they smell the burning flesh. We have to differentiate between pain and actual harm and injury. You will find in our society today, if you listen to the, I think I used the word miasma, the, 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 the stuff that's spewing in the media, this differentiation is not made. It's all about someone feeling hurt. And we, 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 can't, we can't feel pain. We have to stop anybody from feeling uncomfortable. Oh. This is also why it's well-known doctors do not treat their own families the best. Because they over-empathize and they have a hard time making interventions that might cause pain, even though they're therapeutic. So what is required beyond mere compassion and love and concern and empathy and sympathy for someone, what's required beyond that? There's something required beyond it. Knowledge of reality and understanding of design law, how God designed life to operate and an accurate diagnosis of what's actually wrong. Compassion without understanding, merely seeking to alleviate pain is like numbing that person who's touching a hot stove. 
We don't understand why they're in pain. We just know they're hurting. Let's take the pain away. Uh, last paragraph. Expectations. Another important element in working to alleviate suffering is to have proper expectations, given the complexity of social, political, and personal circumstances. Our hope should be to give people choices and opportunities that they might not have had otherwise. Sometimes what people do with these opportunities will disappoint us, but we must respect those choices. In what in whatever way we might try to work in behalf of the suffering, our guiding principle must be do to others what you would have them do to you. What is the difference between creating opportunity and demanding equal outcomes? Do you see a problem if we promote policies with the goal of demanding everyone get the same thing at the end of the day? Well, let me ask you this. We have to understand why all people have equal moral worth as human beings, as children of God. Not all people have the same abilities, equal desires, equal vision, equal motivation, equal aspiration, equal tenacity, equal drive, equal willingness to work, push, train themselves. Not all people have equality in all those things, do they? even though they have equal moral worth. Why should we expect equal outcomes? It's a lie that's being pushed. Some people will be better artists than others, better musicians, better athletes, better carpenters, better mathematicians. There's a corruption in society that we demand equal outcomes, and in school systems, this desire has led, and I've had patients who are teachers in this community, and they are very frustrated because they've been told that when a student turns in a good paper, excellent work, they are not to commend the student in front of the other students. They are not to say, that was an excellent paper, because the student who didn't get commended might get their feelings hurt. This is a corruption. Focusing on someone's feelings rather than objective reality. While we value it, uh, uh, while the value of a person is not measured by their success in any endeavor, in, in other words, how well they do something, that is not a measure of their value as a as a human being. And, and so, we should make clear to children that they are loved for who they are and not what they do. Let's make this very clear: children should be un, they should be understood. They are loved for who they are, not for what they do. But we also must make clear to children that loving them for who they are doesn't develop their abilities. They have to apply themselves. And they have different strengths, different capacities, different abilities, different um, uh, desires and motives. And, and only as they apply and develop them will they become skillful at them. This idea that everyone gets a participation award is corrosive. Tuesday's lesson. The paragraph says, God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. What does it mean? God loves a cheerful giver. Well, let me ask, what's the difference between a cheerful giver saying, what's the difference between saying, God loves a cheerful giver and saying, God loves a giver? To some people are selfish and wretched and giving only because of the effect it will have on people's opinion of them. Are you saying God doesn't love the selfing and the and the and the and the you know the begrudging? He doesn't love them. 
I'm saying the person that's more cheerful in giving is more in harmony with God's unselfish principle. So, so what's wrong with saying God loves a selfish giver? Because he loves them still, doesn't he? So why don't we say God loves a selfish giver? Or yeah, doesn't he love the selfish giver? That's compliance. <laughs> He's too No, I'm, I'm pushing a point here. Understand, and you, you were getting there, you really were. Design law. This love is not an attitude of God in this context. It is operational and functional. How does love function? When you understand that, God's ability to send his love into the heart of the person, to dispense it, to share it, to imbue it, requires a heart willing to receive it. And that heart has to practice, what you were saying, the, the principles of love. And so the one who gives cheerfully, they are open to receive the love of God. So he's able to love, actual in action. He can love the cheerful giver. But the selfish, hard-hearted one, the, the one that's doing it for the, the, the begrudging one, the resentful one, they're not open to receive the love of God that he would love to pour in it, but their heart's not. He can't functionally love them. Does that make sense? This is an important distinction. God loves a cheerful giver. And, and this is how the law of love works. The more you give, the more you receive. So consider the garden hose on your house and the fire hydrant in front of your house. And you turn them both on full. Which is giving away more water? Which is receiving more water to it? The more you give, the more you receive. Romans 5.5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. Understand, the natural human heart doesn't have love in it anymore. Since Adam. The more love you give, you're giving that love because you're receiving it from God. And the more you give, the more you receive. And you'll be transformed by it. It'll flow through you. You'll be lifted up by it. This is how our ministry has been structured to function. Come and reason ministries. Many of you may know that we're a 501c3, not-for-profit uh, ministry, registered with the IRS here in the United States. We, how many of you have been to one of our fundraisers? You see, no hands go up because we've never done a fundraiser. We don't do fundraisers. How many of you gotten letters in the mail asking for money? We don't do that. We try to practice and we practice the principle of giving stuff away and letting the Lord inspire people who are blessed to give back. And the more we give, the more we receive. And we give away multiple DVDs and books and, and the free Remedy app and the free Remedy audio and Bible study guides and free access to all the resources on our website. And, and we give to uh, free books to pastors and churches and schools and our training uh, equipping course that even though there's a registration fee there, it's being subsidized by this ministry. So uh, you, the, the fee you pay will not even cover the meals that you will eat there. We're subsidizing that. And the reason we're charging is because we want people who are really invested in coming. At the General Conference uh, in 2015, we gave away, uh, and I don't recall the exact number, so I don't hold me to these exact numbers. I'm approximating from memory. Uh, 40,000 DVDs, 30,000 Bible study guides, 30,000 books, and other resources we gave away. And at the GC, there were three football field size auditorium rooms filled with booths in, in the exhibit hall. We were the only ones giving stuff away. There was not another booth giving away the stuff. Everybody else either just had samples to show or were selling. We gave. And people from other ministries were coming up to us. Some of you were there and you remember you were helping us out. We're coming up all, all, the entire 10 days saying, how can you guys afford to do this? How can you guys afford to do this? And we just explained. We give. 
and the more we give, the more the Lord blesses us. And, and interestingly enough, while we were standing there, I'm explaining this to this, and there's a guy that comes along, and he's the first time he's met our ministry, and we're just giving him all the stuff. It's free, free, free. We don't even have a donation box out. We don't even. Uh, and he opens his wallet and says, "Here's fifty dollars." While this guy's asking me about it, and I said, "See how that works?" <laughs> and, but I, but I said to the guy, I said, "No, we, we are, we're really not wanting to take your money here. We're willing just to give." Just, he goes, "I know, but I just want to give back." <laughs> okay. And uh, so I'm telling you this, uh, we didn't do fundraisers for that, but we let people know about it. And right now we are currently scheduled and approved to have a booth at the 2020 GC in Indianapolis. And I want you to keep that in prayer because you know there are some uh, factions within our organization. There's some small groups that, and I say small because it is small. There's a small groups of individuals here and there that would not like us to be there. And, uh, and there's always uh, some behind the scenes, a little grumbling and gossiping and stuff. So keep it in prayer that the Lord keeps this opportunity available for us. And we are, and I'm letting you know that, because we were told last time if we hadn't let people know, they would have been, some of our supporters have been very upset because they wanted to contribute and support us in this. But we're planning to uh, our materials right now. And um, uh, I, we're going to be giving away books and, and videos and all kinds of stuff again. And so if you want to be part of that, just uh, just come on board with us and keep us in prayer for sure, though. Wednesday's lesson, blessed are the peacemakers. What does this mean? How can we promote peace? What is the only way for real peace to be experienced? Freedom. Can you have real peace without love, without trust, and without freedom? Can you have real peace without those? Can you get love and trust with treaties? Trust but verify. Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember Reagan and Gorbachev. Trust but verify. Uh, Can you get love and trust by treaties, by laws, by rules, by force, by threats, by punishment? Can God get love and trust and thus eternal peace in his universe by punishing wrongdoers? If you punish people who don't trust you and then therefore they don't trust you, they don't follow your instructions, they don't obey the laws of your land, and if you punish them for them, can you get them to trust you more? Interesting. Does this mean there's no punishment for sin? Interestingly enough, I have emails that come in from various sections and the quarters of the world. Jenny, uh, we heard that you teach that there's no punishment for sin. If I said this, parents don't inflict lung cancer on their children to punish them for smoking. If I say that, parents don't inflict lung cancer on their children to punish them for smoking. Is that the same thing as saying smoking does not lead to lung cancer? Is that the same thing? No. So when I say God doesn't inflict punishment on sinners who won't allow him to save them, is that the same thing as saying there's no punishment for sin? Some people can't process that. They can't figure that out. Because they operate in a human law model and they believe punishment only comes out from God. And so they would actually probably agree with Satan who says, guys, there's nothing wrong with sin. Sin doesn't harm. Sin doesn't hurt you. There's only something wrong with what God will do to you for it. And if he would simply restrain himself and get a little self-control, maybe give some anger management classes, we could live eternally in sin because sin doesn't harm. God harms you for it. This is Satan's view. This is what is taught in penal substitution theology. It is corruption. There's absolutely a punishment for sin, but I go with scripture. Galatians 6, 8, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. 
Or James chapter 1, sin when full grown brings forth death. This is the reality of how we're out. So there's a terrible punishment. How does God get love and trust and eternal peace then? Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Now, what do you think of gunmaker Colt coming out with a pistol in 1873 called the Peacemaker? <laughs> you guys know. You guys heard. You guys know that, right? Okay, there was, a, there was a quote, unknown source, but this quote historically is, is known. God made some men big and some small, but Sam Cole made men all the same size. Okay, what's implied in the quote? That bullies exist in the world and dominate and abuse the weak, but the peacemaker pistol would diminish the disparity between the strong and the weak and thus decrease abuse of others. That was the implication, right? Did it work? Did pistols in people's hands reduce abuse? No, it only allowed for more bullies or changed who the bullies are. Anybody can be a bully with a gun. Because it has always been about character. It's always been, always will be about character. How many of you would need to be afraid of Jesus in the possession of a gun. Would you need to fear if he, if somebody handed him, here Jesus, take my gun. Oh, no, oh, no, no Jesus has got a gun, I'm scared now. Or would you be perfectly safe? Do you understand he has more power than a gun? But would you be scared if he had one? Why not? Peter carried a sword, if you remember. Yes, Wendell. I was talking about peace and God's kingdom being one of peace, and someone brought up Matthew 10, um, 34, where Christ says, Read it. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the world. No, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set sons against their fathers. Louder. Louder, louder, read it. Daughters against their mothers, daughters-in-law against their mothers-in-law. Your worst enemies will be members of your own family. So what, what? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What's being described? What law lens are you looking through? Imposed law lens. Well, you know, this is how they teach. He's coming back, and a sword's going to come out of his mouth on a white horse, and he's going to ride with an army, and he's going to crush his enemies with a rod of iron. And you're going to be a sword. This is a sword of truth, guys. A double-edged sword. A sword of truth. This is a sword that cuts selfishness out of the heart. Let me just read that to you because we're running out of time. Let me read that same passage to you. It was perfect timing because it was right in my notes when I had it right there. <laughs> same passage out of the remedy. Don't think I've come to make peace with a selfish world. I have not come to bring peace with selfishness, but a sword to cut selfishness out of the hearts of people. I have come to cut dysfunctional family ties, to free a son from the selfish loyalty to his father's ambitions and feuds, to sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and manipulative mother, to cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has toward her mother-in-law. A person's worst enemies are often members of, her own, of their own family. Uh, doesn't that make perfect sense? This is the sword. To free our hearts to love. 
to free our hearts from fear, to free our hearts from selfishness. This is a sort of truth and love. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for the victory he achieved in our behalf, for the Holy Spirit which has been poured out to take the victory of Christ and, and reproduce it in us. So we ask for the spirit of truth and the spirit of love to come and lighten our minds, write your living law of love into our inmost being, transforming us to be like you, that we can be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. We pray in your holy name. Amen.